Emmaus, what a great expression this morning of the good news of Jesus on display through the church. You sound amazing singing, celebrating together through baptism, the Lord's Supper. I love you guys so much. Stay, stay the course. Continue to, to grow and, and, and move together. If you would, take your Bible and turn to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 1. No great surprise because of the word written behind me up here on the stage. We're going to begin a series of sermons in the book of Proverbs called Walk This Way. Now, we've done the Beatles. You know, we've done a little bit of of rap music back in the Revelation series. There will be no Aerosmith impersonations, and there will definitely be no Run DMC impersonations from their attempt to, uh, to take over Walk This Way and, and, and move it out of the rock category. So, so no impersonations of Aerosmith or Run DMC, but we are going to begin to look at the book of Proverbs and ask the question of what does it mean to be Christians who read this book that seems to be very general in some sense, seems to connect across a wide spectrum, but, but how do we read this book as Christians? What does it mean to live the life that God has called us to live? If you're not a Christian, but you're interested in how religion impacts our lives, how religion impacts the way that we live, the book of Proverbs is a great connecting point. Lord knows if there was ever a time in our country or as a people that we needed wisdom, what does it look like to live wisely in the world? This is a time to, uh, to, to attack this idea of what does it look like to live wisely. Now, we value what it means to preach verse by verse expository sermons. It's not gonna work perfectly with the book of Proverbs, so we're not gonna do one one through the end of chapter 31 necessarily verse by verse. We're, we're gonna do it verse by verse in components, but trying to hit some of the big themes, trying to understand how the book of Proverbs works. Let me challenge you to do something in your personal life. The book of Proverbs works great for this, but if, if you're not in the habit of reading the Bible, or maybe your Bible reading has become a little shaky lately and you're looking for a way to reconnect, Let me challenge you, read the book of Proverbs, reading one chapter per day. The reason this works out well is because there's 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs, and so over a month's time, most months working well with the 31 number, you're able to read a chapter per day just kind of following the calendar. So you wake up tomorrow, your phone says it's the 10th day of the month, you read the 10th chapter of Proverbs. You just take it a day at a time. Let me challenge you to do that. I I think you'll see the Lord show you things that fit across the scope of Scripture. You'll be reminded of things. And it's amazing how God will put a proverb in front of you that will then be tested in your life that day where a proverb says, you know, a kind word turns away wrath and you're put in a situation to offer a kind word in a moment of anger. Read the book of Proverbs in that way. So here's what I want you to do. Tomorrow, don't start with chapter one. Start with chapter 10. But that actually works really well because the book of Proverbs is really two halves, but but not exactly halves. It's one through nine fits together as a very particular section of Proverbs, almost like an introduction, a nine chapter introduction to the book. One through nine is kind of the foundation. 10 through 31 is the outflow of that foundation at the beginning. So what we're gonna do as a church, we're gonna start tomorrow reading Proverbs 10 
you're going to get the whole scope of the book going 10 to 31. And then when we wrap around in November, you'll be able to go back and I think read those opening chapters of Proverbs in a fresh way. And I pray that this study would be powerful in your lives, it'd be powerful for, for our church. As we get ready to read this text and, and pray, I also want us to be praying for churches not only across our nation, and we realize, you know, if you spend any unfortunate amount of time watching news, you realize how much prayer and how much wisdom we need at this moment. But with everything going on, don't forget the people of Haiti, don't forget the people of Cuba, don't forget those children living in Aleppo, Syria, don't forget the church in Turkey and China facing very intense, ratcheted up persecution in the past couple of weeks. Sometimes if we're not careful, we get so inwardly consumed with the struggles that we face, and they are very real, and they are things that we need to engage with, but we lose sight of how the gospel of Jesus Christ is at work around the world, how the church is engaged in all places, all times, all languages, all situations that God's spirit is moving. So just as much as we need him to move in our lives right now, and we do, we remember that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're engaged in so many other things that are going on around our world. And so I wanna make sure we're keeping that at the front of our minds uh, as a church. Let's look at Proverbs chapter one, and we're gonna read verses one through seven this morning, and then we're gonna skip over and read verses 29 through 33 at the end of that chapter. So the beginning of chapter one and then the end of chapter one. Here's what it says, um, and I'm reading English Standard Version for, for this series. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands abstain, ob, obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Then skip over to verse 29. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Father, thank you for the gift of the church. Thank you for the gift of your word as we seek to understand that together this morning individually and as a church. Father, we pray for wisdom in our lives and our families. We pray for wisdom as we engage uh, with life and our nation, both on a national scale and equally importantly on a, on a local and regional scale. And God, we also pray for our brothers and sisters in Haiti and in Cuba and Syria and Turkey and China in places that sometimes so quickly fall off the radar 
but who are in such need, God, who need to be reminded of what it is to be connected through the body of Christ, and Father, that the hope of the gospel would go forward in those places, that amidst tragedy, amidst war, amidst government oppression, Father, the the hope and the victory of Christ would be made clear, that there would be light shining in a dark place, and Father, that we would be aware of how you can use us in those ways, and how you wanna work in our lives, but not only work in our lives, but work through our lives. Father, I pray that this morning that the study of your word uh, would be fresh to us and would guide us in the days to come. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you have access to one of the bulletins, one of the worship guides that you got when you came in, you can turn it over on the back and we've got a few notes uh, that might be helpful for you that if you wanna make some side notes or some side comments, you, you can do that. Over the course of this sermon series, and especially over the course of the next couple of weeks, I want to do something very simple. I want to call you, and I want to call us, to give our lives to Jesus Christ and not Benjamin Franklin. Now, I know that seems like a random thing to say, but but I'm calling you, whether you are a religious person who's curious about Christianity or whether you're someone who's been engaged as a Christian for a long time, I want to call you to give your life to Jesus Christ fully and not to Benjamin Franklin. I've become pretty fascinated with Benjamin Franklin in the last couple of weeks doing some reading and there's a book coming out in early 2017 by Thomas Kidd who is a historian at Baylor about the life of Benjamin Franklin and his spiritual life, his engagement as one of the early founding fathers, and I'm looking forward to, to picking that book up, but I've done some other reading that Thomas Kidd uh, has, has put out there and some work that he's doing in historical research with early America and some of his work there at Baylor. Benjamin Franklin, though, is, is a fascinating figure. Uh, born in 1706, he's obviously well known for being an inventor and a scientist. Every little kid is amazed by his little kite thing with the, with the electricity. That's actually uh, a scenario that gained him some international fame. Uh, I always saw it as more of a legendary uh, factor of his life, but it's something that gained him some, some international scientific fame. He's an innovator, innovator in the early printing industry, uh, just a really a true Renaissance man in terms of his love for books. He got into the printing industry because he wanted to provide free books for himself. Is, is the main reason he got, he was so interested in books, so much love to read, that he got involved in the printing industry and made so much money in the print, printing industry by the time he was into his 40s that he was able to retire a wealthy man later to live into his 80s. But, but he was an innovator and incredible businessman in the printing industry. He's well known for his diplomacy work, uh, obviously the Treaty of Paris in 1783, the work that he does there as a statesman. If you've read David McAuliffe's book on John Adams, he talks about Benjamin Franklin and the work that he does and kind of his character in relation to that Treaty of Paris in 1783. So he's known for all of these things, but Benjamin Franklin grew up in a poor, economically speaking, in a poor Puritan home. Uh, the Puritans are some early, devout religious folks uh, in, in the New World, take their faith very seriously, are very uh, strict, for lack of a better term, in, in their way of living. And so Benjamin Franklin grows up in that world, 
And he knows his Bible extremely well. One of the things he loves about the printing industry is that he's able to print the Bible, and and he knows his Bible very well. But early in his life, we get some records that he begins to doubt his faith as an early teenager. He has all these questions. Uh, His intellect is so high, he's so critical of so many things that 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 doubt and, and critical spirit begins to be applied to faith. And there's kind of a side point that we want to make sure we're aware of. You never know, and you sure don't want to make generalizations about situations you don't know specifically, but Benjamin Franklin here is a youth, a teenager, growing up in a strict religious environment, and he begins to have these questions. And what often happens in those situations is those questions are suppressed Doubt becomes the worst form of sin. You're not allowed to explore. You're not allowed to talk about these things. And so he turns inwardly and and forms this foundation of skepticism and doubt that really stays with him to the very end uh, of his life. And one of the things that, that we see related to that is with teenagers, with youth, some of you think about your own growing up experiences of having questions Usually, and I think I've said this before, but usually what drives people away from church is not doubt, it's unexpressed doubt or or shameful doubt. It's this idea that I have these questions and I'm a bad person because I have these questions, I don't have any way to explore them or ask anyone. Very rarely does doubt drive anybody from church. It's usually unexpressed or shameful doubt. And and early in his life, you can see where Benjamin Franklin is beginning to, to deal with this, but he has this religious background And he grows up into this incredible statesman, this incredible inventor, this incredible scientist. And one of the interesting things about his life is that he is, he loves Christianity because of the morals, because of the ethics. He loves the idea that he can read the Bible and maybe become a better person, but he hates doctrinal controversy. He hates the idea of these churches, these denominations uh, arguing or, or fighting over these doctrinal controversies. And what Benjamin Franklin ultimately wants is he wants the do good of Christianity without any thought of theology or doctrine. He, he wants to separate the two. But along the way, he becomes friends with George Whitfield. Benjamin Franklin and George Whitfield are extremely good friends. George Whitfield is one of the most famous preachers in not only early American life, but British life at this time. And he and, Whit- he and Franklin become, become good friends. George Whitfield has an orphanage in Georgia at this time, and Benjamin Franklin becomes a primary financial contributor to George Whitfield's orphanage in, in Georgia because Franklin loves the fact that Whitfield is helping out these little kids, that he's doing all of this good work with this orphanage, but he doesn't like Whitfield's preaching about conversion. And so you get these letters back and forth between Whitfield and and Franklin, and Whitfield is such an incredible example because he sticks with Franklin to the very end of his life, writing letters imploring Benjamin Franklin to confess Jesus as Lord saying, you're this great scientist who's studied all of these things. Please give your attention to what it means to be born again. Please give your attention to all these things. And so, so Whitfield and Franklin have these conversations to the very end of their life. But, but by all accounts, what Franklin wants is he wants a good, productive life that does good for others 
that allows you to live the best life you can and then whatever happens beyond that just, just sort of happens. Uh, it seems like he had some interest in prayer. Uh, there, there's an account that Benjamin Franklin is the only one who calls for prayer at the original Continental Congress and he's actually turned down uh, for the offer. They decide not to pray there even though he's the only one praying but he struggles with prayer over his life because he loves the idea of praying making you a more religious person but he struggles with the idea of knowing the God that he's praying to. What I think you find with Benjamin Franklin is you find the perfect example of 21st century American religion. What was true of Benjamin Franklin in the mid to late 18th 18th century almost perfectly matches the world that we live in. And I would say especially if you take middle America where we are right now as Emmaus, the theology of Benjamin Franklin is the theology of the people you live with, you work with, that we're around every day. You may be here this morning to say, you know what, I love what you're saying about Benjamin Franklin. That's exactly how I feel about religion. I put a couple of notes there on your bulletin about the wisdom of Ben Franklin. Franklin's wisdom was be virtuous, so live an ethical life and do good deeds. As you do that, be as productive and efficient as possible. Franklin, if he lived in the 21st century, would have loved his smartphone (laughs) because he was all about finding a way to be more productive. There's a phrase out there. If you haven't heard the phrase, you'll probably hear it at some point. There's a phrase out there called life hacks, H-A-C-K-S, life hacks. Life hacks are all these things that you try to do to become more productive. Now, I know that some of you could care less about productivity or efficiency or trying to get more done. But if you're a workaholic or if you're somebody who's very driven, you're always looking for a way, how can I do more? How can I achieve more? How can I be more productive, more successful, more efficient? These are life hacks, but they didn't start in the 21st century with your smartphone. They started with Benjamin Franklin in the 18th century. He has all these words of wisdom. He is writing Dale Carnegie's books and Stephen Covey's books, and Tim Ferriss's blog articles. He's writing those things at the end of the 18th century, not in the 21st century, because it's all about how can I be productive and efficient in order to live a better life, to do more good things for other people. And see, the wisdom of Franklin says, consider the merits of Christianity. He liked the fact that people went to church, not to worship, because he but because he felt like going to church made them more disciplined, better people in their everyday life. He liked Jesus' ethical teaching, but he hated doctrine. And this doctrineless, ethical Christianity is really the world in which we live. And there's a lot that's appealing about that. There is a lot that is appealing about the wisdom of Ben Franklin because a lot of it is reflected in the teaching of the New Testament. This idea of doing good for others, this idea of living an ethical life, this idea of making the most of this one life that you're given, that's good. But what it loses is it loses the heart of life. It loses the fact that our most important goal in life is not to be more productive, it's that we need to be made right with God. That we have sinned against a holy God and I don't overcome that by being more efficient, being more productive. I overcome that only through Jesus Christ. And so what I want us to do is appreciate Ben Franklin, realize that that represents the world in which we live, but I want to point you to the wisdom of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that through the book of Proverbs. 
And we're going to start this morning with just kind of an introduction to that, really centered on verse 7. But let's go back to verse 1 in the book of Proverbs and begin to walk through this and think about what does the wisdom of Jesus Christ look like when it's studied through the lens of the book of Proverbs? Verse 1 of Proverbs chapter 1. It says, The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Now we're going to talk about Solomon next week. But but what I want you to notice here is even with this reference to Solomon, the Proverbs are being placed in a much broader context because it's not just the Proverbs of Solomon, it's the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. So whoever it was that compiled all of these Proverbs together in this book, whoever this editor is, is letting us know from the very beginning that these Proverbs are not just wisdom from mankind, but they're meant to put you in a bigger story. So you have to read Proverbs within the story of the King David. You have to read Proverbs within the story of Israel. You have to read Proverbs within this bigger picture to get a feel for what's going on here. It's not just the Proverbs of Solomon, but it's son of David, King of Israel. You gotta have big picture going on here. Then you get into verse two and it shows you what's happening in the book. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight. Okay, a couple of things happening in verse 2. You see the words, it depends on the translation you're reading there, but, but at the beginning of verse 2, the words wisdom and instruction are repeated in English Standard Version. Then if you skip down to verse 7, at least in the English Standard Version, it's a little bit different in other versions, but the very last words of verse 7 are also wisdom and instruction. What the author is doing there is he's wanting to tell you you need to read verses 2 through 7 as a section. So he begins the section with these words, wisdom and instruction, and he ends the section in verse 7 with those same two words to say, I need you to read these verses together because they're meant to fit together to prepare you for what's going to come later in the book. And it says to know, which is obviously an intellectual, so we're we're engaging our minds, to know wisdom, something that you do with your life. So what you see here with this first verse here in verse 2, wisdom, Proverbs, is going to involve knowledge, it's going to involve intellect, but it's also going to involve everyday life. We get into these battles, uh, and these are battles that happen in my mind. They're battles that happen in church. Some people love books, love reading, love intellectual arguments. Some people are ready to leave books behind after the eighth grade and say, you know what, that's great that you like to read those and have intellectual arguments. I like to just do things. Let's stop talking about it and just do things. And you get in this tension between are we supposed to think about it or are we supposed to do things? Well, the book of Proverbs says, if you think well, you're gonna act well. And we need to act, we need to think, you're supposed to keep these two things together. So don't don't pit intellectual arguments and real life actions against each other. The book of Proverbs says that they're always meant to go together. You're supposed to know wisdom, and that next word, instruction, is a word that means discipline or, or correction. So from the beginning of the book of Proverbs, it's saying you're going to hear some things that are going to challenge the way you're living. We need discipline. We need correction. One of the things that shows up in the book of Proverbs is it seems like these Proverbs or this wisdom is listed according to a lot of different words. 
I like the explanation that I read this last week from, um, from a commentary from Derek Kidner. He says, the different words for wisdom are like a prism that break the light of wisdom into many colors. So when we read poetry, we think, why does the author use all these different words to describe wisdom? And Kidner uses the analogy, it's like a prism that takes the idea of wisdom and then breaks it into all these different colors. And so you begin to see how wisdom is multifaceted. It's not just one singular idea or one singular action. It's meant to encompass all of life. It's meant to deal with all these different things that we face in life. And so you're gonna see it show up in different ways. You get to verse three. So to know wisdom and instruction, and then it says to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. That idea of receiving or taking something shows that wisdom is going to require an active role on on your part and my part. Wisdom is rarely something we gain by osmosis. Sometimes, sometimes that happens. You're just around wise people and you become wiser, but you've still taken some sort of action. Becoming wise requires action on our part. It requires wanting to receive that, to take that. It's hard to teach or coach or train someone that doesn't want to be taught or coached or trained. Uh, you know that as parents, you know that as employers, you know that as school teachers, as coaches yourselves. The people that you love to coach, you love to teach, you love to train, are those who are just sitting there just soaking it up. They want to receive it. They want to take it. They say, I don't know everything. You've probably worked with someone or coached someone or trained someone who already knew everything that you were going to teach them and coach them and train them. Like, you're like, well, why am I here? I'm just here getting a paycheck because obviously you know everything already. Wisdom says you don't know everything already. I don't know everything already. We need to receive, we need to take. This is active. This is saying, I want to learn. It's so much fun to be around someone who wants to be coached, who wants to, be, who wants to learn, who wants to be trained. This is the idea you get here. And it says to receive instruction and in wise dealing. Wise dealing is a phrase that says knowing how to apply wisdom to all kinds of different situations. So wise dealing is this idea that you know when you face a situation, this is what I should do. And the way you learn that is you're coached, you're taught, you're trained, you, you gain wisdom in knowing how to do these things. And then the end of verse three is a very important section here at the end of verse three. It says in righteousness, justice, and equity. It's a little bit hard to see the way the verses are laid out here, but these three words, righteousness, justice, and equity, actually are at the center of verses two through seven. They're not at the center if you number them, but if you lay out the grammar, uh, and I had to get grammar in some point this morning, but uh, if you lay out the grammar, they actually fit in the middle. So righteousness, justice, and equity are at the core of what it means to be a wise person. You say, well, that's not particularly helpful. Here's why it's helpful. It's helpful because those three characteristics are often used together in Scripture for the character of God. So let me try that phrasing again and let you see why this is important. Those three words, righteousness, justice, and equity, appear at the very center of this opening section of Proverbs. 
They appear there because they're reflective of the character of God, which means if we want to know what it really means to be a wise person, then we need to know who God is. Because wisdom lived out in our lives is a reflection of God's character. Because as people, how are we created? We're created in the image of God. So if we're created in the image of God, then we're to live in accordance with his character. And so what's happened here is at the very beginning section, the character of God has been put at the core of what it means to be a wise person. This is why the wisdom of Benjamin Franklin is so dangerous, is because we want wise living, but we want wise living apart from the character of God. We want wise living, but we don't want theology. And what the book of Proverbs and the Bible says, you can't have one without the other. They're always meant to go together and what it means to be made in the image of God. Then you get to verse four. And you start to get this, who is Proverbs four? Who's the audience of Proverbs? To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Now this term simple is a term that you're gonna see a lot as you read through the book of Proverbs. Simple means someone who's lacking instruction, someone who hasn't been shaped. Um, so essentially you're lacking the things mentioned in verses two and three. You haven't been shaped, you're lacking this instruction. It's interesting, it's also a word that at the core means someone who is easily enticed or swayed. So a simple person is someone who doesn't have a deep foundation. Someone who is enticed or swayed, they can easily go one way or the other. They're a simple person. There's no, there's no foundation or, or stability to their lives, which makes sense that then the other descriptor you would get in verse four is youth. Now, it primarily means young in age, but, but it can also just mean there are young people who are wise and older people who aren't wise. Youth here just means someone who is easily, who hasn't been shaped yet, who, who is that simple person that's easily swayed, easily enticed one way or the other. They're moldable. They still haven't been shaped into who they're going to be. What does that person need? It says that person needs prudence, knowledge, and discretion. This gets fun and applicable really fast. Prudence, knowledge, and discretion there are words that can either have a negative meaning or they can have a positive meaning. Negatively, they mean you keep your plans and your words to yourself, like you're trying to trick someone, you're beguiling someone, you keep those words and plans to yourself. So it's, they're words that on a negative side can mean trickery. On a positive side, it means not acting or not speaking when you shouldn't act or you shouldn't speak. A moment of silence while we apply this to our own lives individually. Has there ever been a time that you spoke and thought, oh word, those words should not have come out of my mouth? Or you've done something and thought, what I wouldn't give to have that action back right now. The wise person is the person who knows when to speak and what to say when they speak and knows when to act and what to do when they act. A simple person a youthful person is the person who hasn't yet learned to keep their mouth shut, who hasn't learned to keep that action to themselves when they shouldn't be doing that. And then we all admit, man, if that was only a problem for teenagers, then the world would be an okay place. Except 
Your entire life, you're fighting this battle of why did those words come out of my mouth? (laughs) Why did I do that when I didn't want to do that? Proverbs says the way to keep your mouth shut, the way to act at the right time is to become a person of wisdom. And we see that in verse five because in verse five, it says let the wise hear and increase in learning. This is so good because Proverbs was just addressed to the simple and the youth, but it's also addressed to those who are wise and want to continue to be wise. Wisdom is not something you arrive at. Wisdom is something you continue to grow in day after day, week after week, year after year. There's nothing better than being a part of a church where you see older adults continually hungry to grow in their faith, who don't say, I've reached that, I've done that, I've read the Bible, this is the end. These guys down here, families my age, we need to see what it looks like to finish well, to finish continuing to grow in the word, continuing to grow. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. If you're still breathing, you haven't stopped learning, you haven't stopped growing, you haven't stopped experiencing what it is to be a wise person. The one who understands obtain guidance. And then in verse six, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. What's going on at the end of verse five and in verse six? Here's what's happening in those verses. What's happening in those verses is it's telling us that wisdom, as you grow older, is designed in such a way that you don't get simple answers to situations, but you learn to tackle more difficult problems in more complex ways. As a young person, as a simple person, you just need someone to say, go this way, I promise it's gonna turn out better. As you get older, as you mature in life, as you grow in your faith, you face more complex problems. You face these issues that don't have an easy right or wrong answer, that require discretion, that require wisdom. What the writer of Proverbs is saying here is as you grow wise, as you increase in knowledge, you need to be able to deal with complex issues. Probably the best example of this is uh, just classical education model. Grammar, dialectic, rhetoric. You learn the information, you learn how to discuss the information, you learn how to do something with the information. That's how spiritual growth works. That's how the book of Proverbs is meant to work. You learn this is the will of God, This is how to talk about God's will for your life. This is how to do something with God's will for your life in such a way that someone doesn't have to hold our hand all the way through life. As we grow older, we deal with complex complex problems, but you have to grow to that point. You learn to that point. You mature to that point of wisdom. And then you get to verse seven, to the very core of this process of wisdom. Verse seven says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. This word beginning can either mean like the first in occurrence or it can be first in importance. And it's probably a little bit of both here. But the fear of the Lord is what it really means to be a wise person. The concept of fear shows up a lot in scripture. I just want to give you a couple of really quick examples in light of time here. But, but that concept of fear, um, you see it showing up with the giving of the law In Exodus chapters 19 and 20, uh, this idea that the people are afraid of of the thunder and lightning. Did I leave that slide? There it comes. Okay. At the giving of the law in Exodus 19 and 20, 
The concept of fear shows up in Isaiah chapter 6 as Isaiah has this vision of the Lord in all of his holiness and he's afraid because he realizes his own sin. The book of Job, Job realizes that the fear of the Lord means turning from sin. He knows where sin's gonna lead in his life and he becomes afraid of that and he knows that the fear of the Lord means that he turns away from sin. Then you get to the book of Ecclesiastes and you find that the fear of the Lord means understanding what it is to face judgment. The interesting thing is that the book of Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Then you get to the book of Ecclesiastes and you find that the end of all things is the fear of the Lord. Go, show Ecclesiastes 12. The end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, hey, one day you're gonna stand before the Lord. If you wanna be prepared for how to do that, it begins by fearing God. Fearing God in scripture means to worship him and to be faithful to him. If you need a way to kind of make sense of fear of God in a, in a simpler way, fear of God means to worship him and to be faithful to him. That if we understand who God is and who we are in relation to him, we'll know what it is to do those things. But then at the end of verse seven, you get the other side of the picture. We're gonna skip ahead to the end of verse seven. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Throughout the book of Proverbs, the foolish person, which I know that feels weird to call somebody a fool, but you, you see throughout wisdom literature that being a fool means I'm wise in my own eyes. I've got this figured out. I'm gonna live life however I want to live life. You can't tell me what to do. You can't speak into my life. I've got this taken care of. I don't need God or anybody else. And the book of Proverbs says, that is a foolish way to live. Why is it a foolish way to live? Fast forward to verse 29. Verse 29 says, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof, therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. You'll, you'll reap what, you're sow, what you sow. Verse 32, for the simple, remember we just talked about the simple, for the simple are killed by their turning away and the complacency of fools destroys them. What it's saying is Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. To live a foolish life, not fearing the Lord, not living in need of his wisdom and instruction leads to death. And you actually see this in the New Testament, in the book of Romans. Romans chapter one, look at how these, word, how these verses tie together this concept of, of foolishness and death. Romans chapter one, verses 21 to 22. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling man and birds and animals and creeping things. When we don't live wise lives, we become fools and that foolish sin leads to death. So where's the hope? 
You're like, that's a really negative place to end. Well, the hope actually comes in Proverbs chapter one, verse 33. It says, whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. So if we know what it is to fear the Lord, if we know what it is to listen to him, the result of that is life. Next to the title in your Bible, if you like to write next to, uh, in your Bible, next to the title of the book of Proverbs, you can write in there 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. How do we understand wisdom and Proverbs connected with life through Jesus Christ? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. Paul says, because of God's work in your life, because of God, you are now in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If we want to understand what it is to experience wisdom, we see that through Jesus Christ given to us by the power of God so that we turn to him and find every good thing for life. Just before Benjamin Franklin died, Ezra Stiles, who was president of Yale University, came to Franklin and one last time implored him, begged him to turn to Christ. Franklin's MO, his, his way of dealing with this over his year was to turn it always into a joke. And he did it again at the very end of his life. His only response to Ezra Stiles was to joke back with him and say, in a couple of weeks, I guess we'll find out if I really needed the Lord or not. And he died just a, just a few weeks later. The Bible says that someone who takes lightly the things of the Lord is a fool but we don't say that in a condemnatory way. We don't say that in a prideful way. We say that looking into our own lives, realizing our own brokenness, our own sin, our own need for the Lord. And this morning, can I just call you to give yourself to Jesus Christ, the one who for us is wisdom and redemption and justification and every good thing that we need is found in Christ. We have assurance in him. We find hope in him. We find life in him. And we want to turn to him this morning. I'm going to pray for us. Then we're going to sing. If the Lord's working in your life in a particular way, you need prayer. You're looking for a church to join with. You, most importantly, you just need to give your life to Christ. During this time, you're going to have a chance to respond. We'll be down here at the front to pray for you as we sing this song together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Proverbs that it's not just a long list of how to live a better life. It's a book that calls us to fear you so that we would find life, not through our own efforts, but through the goodness and the salvation of Jesus Christ. Father, if there are those here this morning who live productive lives, who do a lot of good, who look around at their neighbors and think, I'm better than that person and they're a Christian, God, I pray that you would draw them to yourself, that they would see that full wisdom, that full life is found through Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.